Denver's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad. And on today's show, we break the thermometer and watch the mercury spill out all over your brand new Crocs. What a waste of mercury, as I am very pleased to welcome back the one and only human in the world who can say they're my boss, the great Jonathan Little. Strap into your seat because today's conversation is going to cover playing poker, teaching poker, learning poker, and learning from poker. JL is a powerhouse in the poker community as he has over 7 million in live MTT caches, is a two-time WPT champ, is the season six WPT player of the year, and works so hard he makes me feel like I'm asleep at the wheel. He posts a weekly blog, has at least two podcasts, publishes multiple YouTube vids per week, and has built his baby, PokerCoaching.com, into one of the most dominant poker training forces on the market. Oh, and remember the last time we spoke and Jonathan told me with a straight face he wouldn't write another book? Me too, but it appears the man just can't help himself as he's recently wrapped up yet another eventual poker classic which means the count is now up to 15 best-selling poker strategy books. In today's conversation with the founder of PokerCoaching.com, you are going to learn how a homeless dude in a junkyard was a catalyst to Jonathan's poker career, adjustments you ought to make when playing against weaker opponents, how Jonathan manages to continue to find stuff to write about, and much, much more. And before you dive into this episode with JL, I wanted to take a moment to let you know about my latest mini course, Neutralize River Leads. NRL is powered by Mass Data Analysis and is a pay-what-you-wish mini course so that you can experience the power of MDA at absolutely no upfront cost. You can grab your copy at ChasingPokerGreatness.com NRL by joining the daily newsletter. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you card player entrepreneur, 15 times author and fan favorite, Jonathan Little. Mr. Little, how you doing, sir? Great. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here today with you on the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. Hello, everyone. It's it's my pleasure having you. You, you mentioned that you skipped your nap today, so you're a l- little worried about your energy levels, but I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen Jonathan Little dragging ass and low energy ever. I'll tell you what the secret is. So normally I'm in my office doing my thing. Whenever it's time to be on, I raise the standing desk. I get up, put a light on in front of my face, have some water. And that's like the cue to get going and I'm ready to go. (laughs) Yep. Cue to exert some energy. I have to imagine, have to imagine after like a day of doing like a little coffee, a day of doing webinars. Uh, I don't, I assume managing your, your enterprise is time consuming that there are times where you're, and actually raising children, right? Like raising Uh, a family, 
that you just totally crash and you know you're just done I think there's a lot of value in just having a schedule and also mixing it up, right? Like I don't take care of my kids all the time and I don't write books all the time and I don't make videos all the time. But if you mix it up and also you sort of change the framing of what you're doing, like, you know, time to make a video, time to do an interview, stand up, get in the zone. I know when I stand up, it's time to do the work, right? Whenever I sit down to write a book, I know I'm not going to let anything else bother me. I close everything else on the computer and I do the work, right? Yep. Someone just messaged me today, someone who's very successful, like, how in the world do you stay on task all the time? And, well, the answer is you outsource everything you don't necessarily want to do. Like, I cannot design graphics to save my life. I cannot edit videos especially well. So I outsource all of these things to professionals. And I do the stuff that I am uniquely qualified to do. So I have a bunch of different things that I could be doing. I wake up, I pick the two or three I want to do that day, and I do it. And then you're, you're excited and motivated to do it. Exactly. Like, people ask me, how do you release so many podcast interviews? How, how do you crank these out so regularly? And it's like, well, for one, I love doing it. I look forward to recording them just as a human being. And two, it, it's like they're scheduled and I'm used to going through the process. And so because of that, like I just, I get in the zone and then I just do it. And, you know, it, it does give me a little bit of solace. Um, so I was speaking with Justin who I'm not sure he, he's my contact within poker coaching. He, I guess I'll refer to him as my manager. I don't know exactly what to, what to call Justin, but basically he wrangles all the coaches. Yeah. He, he's <laughs> Justin like, does it all. Justin's the man. Yeah. He's the coach wrangler. Uh, but I, I was, <laughs> I was telling him like, man, I, I just, sometimes I, I'm so overwhelmed that I wish that I could just duplicate myself. Like I wish that I could just clone myself and, like right now and life would be so much easier. And it, it did give me some solace that he's like, you know, Jonathan said verbatim those, that exact sentence just like three years ago. So I was like, <laughs> okay, at least I'm in good company. Um, and you know, at least I'm trying to progress to where, you know, I, I'm outsourcing all the stuff that I, I'm not very good at and investing my energy in the stuff that I, I am uniquely qualified for. Yeah, and, and to be fair, you're in a pretty good spot in that you have fans, right? So if you reach out to people on social media or your email list and say, hey, I'm looking for a graphics designer or whatever you need, people will reply to you. And then you can go through, look at their work, and then find somebody who wants to work with you. It's very different than if you're just straight up trying to hire someone for a job who doesn't necessarily know poker or doesn't necessarily know you and the things that you do because you have your own tone and the way you present yourself, right? And that, that's very beneficial for you. Like it's beneficial for me. Pretty much everyone who works for me today liked my training content at one point in time. So they were all like kind of fans to begin with and they want to be involved because they like what we do. So you're, you're in a good spot like that where you can find motivated people who like you. Yeah, people reach out to me all the time that just want to help for free. <laughs> like, yeah, hey, exactly. So you need to figure out what do. you need and take the help. Yeah, uh, right now... I don't know what I need. I need, I need lots of things. Um, it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm doing my best to outsource again that, you know, I have my virtual assistant Gwen that I'm like, I'm super pumped about. Uh, I have another virtual assistant who's just like behind the scenes transcribing all the podcast episodes. So yeah, it's just a, it's, it takes time to get all these pieces in place. And then when they are, you kind of look like a superhuman because of how, quickly you can just release content um because that's what you're focused on all day long yeah i mean that that's pretty much it and uh 
You got to find the stuff you don't want to do and have other people do it, especially if they're good at it, right? And a lot of people are better than me at pretty much everything. All I'm actually good at is making content and writing poker books. Not good at a whole lot else. And so uh, I just I just do those things. You're good at poker, right? (laughs) I think I'm pretty good at poker. Uh, Yes, I I haven't played a ton of poker in the last year. Just on you know weekends every once in a while here and there because of COVID. I'm excited for poker to be coming back. I hear U.S. Poker Open is going to be happening in Vegas in the summer. So hopefully that takes place. If that's the case, I will definitely be there. And the World Series of Poker is around the corner. That'll definitely be a place that I go this year to Vegas, getting my vaccine in, in a week, second second shot in a week. So I'll be hopefully good to go and um, ready to get my gamble on and party. Good. Good for you. I, I got my second vaccine and I am, I'm ready to get the hell out of my house. Um, just over it. Uh, I, I do want to touch on something though, that you mentioned you, you, I know that as people who have businesses in this space, um, you don't have a lot of time to play poker. How, do you ever struggle reconciling being a more known as more of a content creator than like an actual poker player? I mean, I still play a decent amount of poker. Whenever I play, I try to play a lot of volume at like decently high stakes, right? So I'm not grinding all day, every day, because like at this point, I don't need to anymore. And I don't necessarily even want to anymore. I want to play sometimes. If you look at a lot of the recreational players, they play when they want to play, which is actually quite nice. It's nice to not have to play poker to pay the bills. That said, I got all of my bills paid by playing poker whenever I was you know, playing live tournaments all the time, because I used to play literally every day for many, many years. So I kind of already did that. And now I'm doing something else. It turns out when you do... Well, in the early parts of your career, you can have a little bit more flexibility to do what you want within reason in the later part of your career. I don't know if I'm in the later part yet. Who knows? But I still play poker, still have good results. So it is what it is. I just happen to be decent at business as well. Yeah. So I I was just, uh, I guess I was just wondering if like you, you ever felt like a loss of identity from being a poker player to moving beyond it. If, you know, you ever just had this thought in your mind, like, I just want to go back and just destroy, like, I just want to crush people again. I do feel that sometimes. I always think that, like, if I did not have a wife and two kids and nothing else going on, I would love to just sit and grind for, like, a month. Like, Scoop's happening right now. I would love to just go and grind the big tournaments on Stars and GG and Party Poker and grind it out and have, uh, you know, get in there and battle. But I have other things going on in life. I got wife and two kids, which takes up a lot of time, and I want to be home with my family. Again, going back to the idea of trying to set yourself up for that six or eight years ago i did not have my training site pokercoaching.com i had some training materials out there which was doing fine but it was not something that could you know fully sustain me or whatnot so i wanted to find a way to be able to stay home and be with my kids who are not born yet now i have a two-year-old and a four-year-old and so i decided to ramp that up right and you know to be fair maybe it would not have worked or maybe it would work who knows But I wanted to set myself up to be in as good of a situation as I possibly could be so that I could do the things that I wanted to do. And right now in life, I would like to go grind poker hard, but at the same time, I'd rather be home with my family. So it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta choose. You gotta pick and choose to some extent. Like there's a game I like called Magic the Gathering. I would love to be a professional Magic the Gathering player, but it's not gonna be in the cards for me in this life because there are many more high value things I could be doing, like being with my kids, running pokercoaching.com, playing poker, right? It's like fourth or fifth down the line. And there's also no guarantee I could even do it, right? So sure, it'd be cool. Sure, it'd be fun to try, but it's just not going to happen because I have priorities and I try to prioritize my life 
reasonably well. But a lot you have to be careful to not prioritize the thing that only makes the most money because then you may end up not necessarily being so happy. Early in my career, I just played a ton of sit and goes like all day, every day. I would grind sit and goes on party poker and that won me a bunch of money, but it didn't necessarily make me happy. And over the course of you know a few years of grinding, I realized that and adjusted my strategy, my priority. Sorry for my kids screaming outside. No, That's how okay. it goes. They know we're doing an interview now, so it's time for them to start screaming. Yes, if you close the door, that's when they want that door to be open and need your attention. They they don't like closed doors. Um, <laughs> I, I think that to it, 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 it's something that I, I guess I've been struggling with a little recently. It's just like I love playing poker and I love destroying players. Like <laughs> like a part of me is like the competitor in me is like you know, get in the streets, let's go. And I've been trying to actually play like just only really 2,500 to 3,000 hands a week of higher stakes. And it's hard for me to even get in that much volume just because of all the other things that I have to do. And plus, I'm not going to play if... I'm not going to play at the end of a day because if I play at the end of a day, my cognitive willpower and energy is very, very low after at like 7 p.m. after all this. So I really have to like prioritize it and make it like a thing. And then I just have so many other things going on that are on top of wanting to play poker that, you know, maybe, maybe it's just, it's a changing of the time for now. And then eventually, you know, things get set in place and you're able to just play like more recreationally. And in your case, in 20 years down the line, maybe you can give, magic the gathering professional player a go because your kids are out of the house and your wife is sick of you and <laughs> at some point you really can do whatever you want uh hopefully we get there we'll see but i mean it sounds like you need to perhaps figure out what your priorities are maybe the priorities are play more poker and you know what i did before covid happened is i would do all of the pokercoaching.com type work about three weeks per month and then i would travel and play poker about one week per month and when I would go, I'd always make sure to go play high value tournaments. So I'm not like going and playing small stakes games where it's like, oh, I don't really want to play. Not really. So I'm going to play stuff that I know I want to play. I had three weeks at home. So I'm like, I'm ready to go play. Right. And after a week of grinding hard, you know, 15, 16 hour days every day, I'm usually ready to be done for about a few weeks. So I found that that works out for me where I get to play about as much as I would really like to. I'm never super burnt out or anything and I'm, and I'm happy with it. But if you're like Jones to go play some poker, go play some poker. You're in a spot in life where you can do that. And if, you know, your coaching business slides a little bit, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know that you want to like write an email every day and do the podcast very frequently. And I know that you think people expect that. And to be fair, some people probably do, but that's okay. You got to be happy. You have to make sure you're living your life and enjoying yourself. And if, the you know business stuff becomes a super grind and you're not happy ask yourself why you're doing it right yeah so what's interesting is like i say this but i love doing the business stuff too sure. like i i love coaching i love making courses i love all of that like you said it's just a priority thing where it's like uh there's only so many hours in a day and i don't get to do all the things that i want to do and that's just okay i just have to reconcile that with myself that i'm not going to get to do all the things i want to do and I, I do. Um, if I feel like I want to play poker, I, I will not write a newsletter for a week or two weeks and just like grind, get that out of my system. And I have a feeling too, that when the world opens up a little bit, that 
just because of responsibilities with business and stuff, traveling is going to be a thing that makes a lot of sense and that I'll most likely need to do. And I think there too, I'll be able to travel to some live events and get in some live poker. And so that'll, that'll allow me to scratch the itch as well as build the business. But ultimately my priority right now is building the business, creating a bunch of courses, making all the sales pages, getting everything kind of in place so that I can have more of my days to myself. You uh, may disagree with this, but I would bet some of those things you just mentioned, you are not the best at and you should be outsourcing that stuff. Like for example, me with sales pages, right? I don't make any sales pages because I mean, I could do it, but people on my team are way better at it than me. And that's what they're, that's what they like doing, right? So, uh, you know, maybe some of the stuff you're doing, you could in theory outsource. And it's tough because I realize you may like doing basically everything yourself to some extent. So you're like, oh, no, I don't want to, I don't want to get, I don't want to give that to someone else. Yeah. But you'll find that if you have, let's say 10 tasks and you like all of your tasks somewhere between, let's say like, hundred out of a hundred and ninety out of a hundred. One of those is the ninety, right? And you might as well get rid of the ninety, and that gives you more time to do more of the other things that are slightly less things you like, even just a little bit more, even though you like all of it to some extent. Well, the one thing that I have to do is make the courses, right? That's the one thing that like I'm uniquely qualified to do, and like I have people that are asking me like, "Hey, Brad, when's the next one coming out?" Like I'm ready to buy. <laughs> I have like just a group of people that are just waiting to buy the next thing. So like that to me ought to be the priority. Um, and well, then to I, be fair, everything comes so, after well, that. let's think about this, right? So say you have to make the courses. I know to go through and make the powerpoints takes a decent amount of time to get sims or to get hands takes a decent amount of time. You mentioned Justin earlier. Justin helps me running Sims. Anytime I need any GTO stuff ran, I tell Justin roughly what I need. In a few days, I have it, right? And I don't have to touch it. And I trust him to do a good job. He's a very, very strong poker player. And he helps me with that, right? Like I trained him. I wanted him to be my clone so that you know he could basically answer whatever poker issues there were. So, you know, he should be a good poker player. And, you know, he's, he's good at that kind of thing. And now, like, if I have to do a, call it novice type presentation, like on YouTube, I'll have a 30-minute webinar on a topic that's not too advanced. Justin will just make the whole thing, send it to me. I'll look it over for five minutes. I'm good to go. Because it's it's like a super advanced stuff, right? Because everything I make is not designed to be very high level. Because there are a lot of people out there who are not high level, especially on YouTube consuming free content, right? So, I mean, maybe you need to find someone like that to help you out, right? I'm, I'm in the process of working on a, another giant course that needs a bunch of Sims ran. Justin's running them. It's going to need like a hundred of them. And I'm not even going to touch it. I know he's going to do a good job and that's why he gets paid the big bucks. So uh, you got you got to find people who you can rely on to do some stuff that perhaps you don't necessarily want to do, or maybe you're not the best at like, He's way better at running GTO Sims than I am. So let him Oh, do. there's a lot of things that I'm absolutely atrocious at and, not qualified to do period. But um, again, it's a process of business building and learning and growth. And, you know, I I think my hope is that just keep trying to do better from day to day and that eventually figure out the right processes and the right stuff that facilitates growth and gets the shit done that I'm ready to get done. Um, (laughs) To be fair, you don't have to do everything. It's okay to not do everything. I know. I I, I know. I, I, I know that for sure. And I do try my best to outsource as much as I possibly can. And um, really, when you're bootstrapping a business, right? In the beginning, like when there's not a ton of revenue coming in, you, you feel 
almost obligated to do most of the stuff. And then as the money comes in, there's this transition to where you're training and hiring out like a bunch of different things. And so I think that's like the phase of business that I'm in where there's a fair amount of money coming in that I'm able to reinvest into people to get the stuff done that I don't necessarily want to do and push, you know, push CPG forward. But yeah, Give me a give me give me a couple of years, man. I, I'm I've only been doing this for like cl- a year and a half. Give me a couple <laughs> of years, and uh, then hopefully, hopefully, I'm doing things in a much more Jonathan Little approved way. I'll tell you one thing. I wish I knew whenever I was first getting started was uh, I've been with my marketing partner Dan Stanley for a long time, I don't know, 14 years or something. So me and him would always do. I would make the content. He'd promote the content. He'd make the websites. I would do get me do interviews and all that stuff. So we pretty clearly knew what we were supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And then over time, we would, you know, eventually bring on, let's say one more person to work on something very specific. That's fine and good. But eventually as the business started to grow a little bit, I would have lots of people doing lots of little things, but you don't necessarily want that. I don't think, I think you want a few people doing a lot of things. Like yes. ideally I'd rather have somebody working for me full time. That way I know they're devoted to me. They're not trying to find another job on the side or whatever, because hopefully, you know, I'm paying their bills, no problem. And uh, they're enjoying their, their time. And that way you don't have to spend a lot of time managing people because managing people is difficult for me, at least maybe some people are great at it, but like that, that, I mean, if you have, imagine you have, let's say 10 people doing five hours of work for you per week and you have to spend an hour with each of them, there goes 10 hours of your time. It's 25% of your time, just torched. Whereas if instead you had three people, it would be three hours of your time. Right. Absolutely. So try to try to keep it. You, you want to spread fast, but at the same time, you don't want to spread like thin, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's the thing is like you hire five people to take care of business stuff. And then all of a sudden you're answering questions from five people and you're managing five. All of a sudden you've created a job for yourself of managing these people. And it's like, wait, this is not, <laughs> this is contrary to the, the goal of what I was trying to accomplish here. So yeah, it's like you basically you know, you have to have a system of management in place. It's, you know, for poker players, it's a learning process. <laughs> for sure. Well, eventually you'll have someone who just manages people. So I have a guy who manages people, a guy, Brian, and he does a good job of it. Whatever needs to get done, it kind of just goes through Brian. Brian has questions. He asks me, I pay attention to everything. I see everything. I chime in a lot, but like, probably, I'm probably more than you should. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I could just disappear. Probably. <laughs> but you know, you, you want to try to make it as easy for yourself as possible. So that you're doing the things you want to do. Um, we talked about like how I have a bunch of coaches at poker coaching, right? But And I do not necessarily want to be scheduling all the webinars and making sure everything's lined up properly because we have a webinar every other day or something like that. Yeah. And I want to make sure the content doesn't like clash with each other, right? Don't want people making content on the exact same thing on the exact same month or whatever. So like a lot of logistical stuff, right? That I don't want to do. So find somebody else who's good at that. Let them do it. And do, you en- do you enjoy the process of business building as much as you have being a poker player? I don't even know if I feel like I'm necessarily building a business. I'm just, I'm just showing up and doing the work. I think I like showing up and doing the work. And ideally I figure out the work that builds the business. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. How how do you even necessarily gauge building a business in well, like while you're doing it, right? Like you can look back and say, look, I had no business five years ago. Now I have a business today. I built it. But like, I don't do something today thinking this is going to get me 0.01% more business or whatever the business grows each day. You know what I mean? I mean, like if you were to wake up 15 years ago, ready to play a full slate of poker tournaments, like do you find more fulfillment at the end of your days today 
when you're doing the poker coaching stuff than you did back when you were grinding? Yes. And the reason is because I feel like I'm helping a lot more people enjoy poker. Whereas in the past, if anything, I was helping, I was hurting people's enjoyment of poker because I was taking their money. So um, I, I definitely prefer doing things where you're interacting with people in a positive way. Whereas at the poker table, it's kind of adversarial to some extent. And I like helping people enjoy their time, right? And if, you know, a lot of people enjoy just straight up studying games like poker. And a lot of people like going from not winning at poker to winning at poker. And also teaching people to get better at poker gives them the potential to win life-changing money. Even if it's not a ton of money hourly, let's say they make 30 bucks per hour live, that's better than a lot of jobs, especially at a time where, you know, maybe a lot of people got laid off, right? Knowing you have the ability to make 30 bucks an hour playing one, three, no limit is quite valuable to a lot of people. And I mean, I know I've helped thousands of people achieve that. And, and that's nice to know that I've given people the potential to make substantial money if they feel like doing that. Yeah. And I feel the exact same way. And I think that's why the poker coaching gig for me has worked out so well is because we're in alignment with that very specific thing of, uh, I, I mean, I, I was telling my wife that if I had infinite money, then I would still want to wake up and do the things that I do, which is a pretty cool feeling that, you know, you're kind of, I'm kind of living um, a life that's true to myself and a fulfilling existence. And that's just pretty cool that I don't know of any, many other periods of my life where I just knew that I love doing this thing. I love building it. I love being a part of it. And yeah, that, that's sort of, it's really, it's just really fulfilling helping people out, especially coming from a world where, you know, you get paid to crush, (laughs) you get paid to not help people out. Yeah. I mean, I I certainly enjoy every, every day that I'm working for the most part, I wake up, I'm ready to do the job. And if there is some job I don't especially like doing, I'm, I'm usually ready to get it off my plate. So I just finished my next book, Secrets of Professional Tournament Poker. It's my first tournament book I ever wrote 10 years ago. We went back and basically remade the whole thing, rewrote the whole thing combined three books that I had my first three books into one big book. And um, the writing process was fine and good. The editing process took forever. We had some issues with the images. We had, um, there, there were just like various small issues, right? And the editing process is always tedious. Uh, something I found that Jonathan Little himself has to do is edit these things because we have had a really difficult time finding people who are good at writing, who are also good at playing poker, who can catch all of the poker stuff. And I found a few editors who are good at some specific things, like some people are really good at looking at the graphs and making sure everything is right. Like they'll find one hand that's not listed in the graph because we have to go through and manually make every pile solver send in this book. It's a big pain, right? So they will come after you if you mess it up. Trust me. (laughs) I know they will. And books are something that people are, well, maybe they're forgiving about mistakes in books, but usually they're not. And the thing is, if you screw up in a book, you can't really fix it because you print thousands of these things. And uh, if it has an error, it's a problem. So you got to do your best to try to make sure it has no errors. You have to make sure it looks pretty. You have to make sure the printed version is going to look pretty before you print it. There's just like a lot of stuff, right? So I've been editing slash, you know, basically finishing up this book for like three months now and got it done two days ago. So that's good. It's good to get it off my plate. Whenever I had to go through and do more edits, like I'm kind of tired of doing these edits, but uh, it is what it is. If I recall correctly, in our first CPG conversation maybe a year and a half ago i remember you saying that you did not want to write any more books <laughs> that you are done writing books because it's it's such a tedious and difficult endeavor 
well, to be fair, I think I actually had this current book pretty much done by then already. So I don't think I've actually started another book project. This is uh, <laughs> the the wrapping up of that thing I started a while back because we knew the 10 year anniversary was coming and D&B Poker has not put out like a giant tournament book in a long time. So might as well, might as well do that, right? So yeah. I knew that was coming. The the I, I basically went through and rewrote the whole thing, but that wasn't so difficult. The actual writing process is not so hard for me. It's kind of just, just like talking, kind of like me here talking to you. I know I can barely get a sentence out of my mouth sometimes, but it's not so hard, right? And writing is not so hard for me for whatever reason, probably because I wrote all these books back here. Right. Um, so it's not so hard for me. And because of that, I don't mind the writing process, but the editing and cleaning up process is is tedious and I don't especially love it, but that's something that I know I'm better at than most people because I know how to write and I know how to play poker. So those are the skills you need for that. And it's, yeah. it's easier said than done. And it's very, very tedious. A really long time ago, maybe three years ago, I had a different podcast and I had an author on the show. Her name's V.E. Schwab, who's actually pretty famous now. I think her her latest book is like number six on all of Amazon Um, It has like 20,000 reviews or just something absurd. But she she told me that basically when it comes to writing, that the first draft of anything is sort of like the sand, right? It's just the sand that you're building something from. And then everything is built in the editing process afterwards, which, like you said, can be tedious, can take a lot of time. And yeah, I, I know that like when I write my newsletters, I can crank out the rough draft 15 minutes flat. And then the rest is just like the editing going back and making sure that I'm happy with the way everything is um, actually takes longer than just getting the words on the page. Yeah, it's true. And and every time I finish a book, I tell myself, all right, I'm not doing that again. But then some other project falls in my lap and I, and we do it. (laughs) Yeah. I don't believe you. You're, you're going to be writing books when you're 90 years old. You just (laughs) have literally no books in the work right now. I do have uh, on my desktop, on my computer over here, I have nine different files for books, book ideas. So uh, (laughs) we have nine ideas that I think are all viable. Then I have a book ideas folder that has like 15 ideas that those are not quite as viable. So anyway, nine things I could write. Maybe I'll get bored and decide to start writing something in about, two or three months. That's how it goes, right? I find something I want to do. I grind it hard and then I'm kind of over it. And then I'm ready to do it again in a few months. It's like playing poker to some extent, right? Yeah. I want to play a lot for a week and then I want to be done for a week or two. You forget how painful it was too. <laughs> you, the, the pain goes away and you're like, mm, I think I want to do that again. For um, me, it's like only painful towards the end when I'm just like kind of over it. I guess I get over stuff. I get over stuff after, after a week or two of doing it 16 hours a day, every day or whatever it ends up being. I don't know about you, but in my experience too, like this is a pitfall and a weakness for me is that when I'm done with something, I'm like done with it. I'm like, oh, I'm like, I've worked on this for like two months straight. I'm done. And then like, that means that the promotion process and the marketing process um, isn't as strong as it otherwise would be. So basically like I need somebody to market and promote this thing because when I'm done with it, like I've devoted everything to this project and it's done. And I'm like, yeah, I just want to be, I want to be over this thing. I want to put it in the rear view mirror. So yeah, that, that's certainly an area where like a marketing team would be very, very helpful for me. Or just realize these are different tasks. And you know, after task one of, let's say writing the book, now task two is promoting the book and yep. view it as, yeah, you did finish writing the book. You did not finish promoting the book. You haven't even started that. That's the next job. So you alternate jobs to some extent. 
Yeah, I think about it like having a multiple personality disorder where it's like, okay, Brad, you're like in coaching mode right now. And then, okay, now you just need to change personalities and go into salesman mode. And like, that's just how I think of it as like the different, like you said, different jobs. And especially like for business owners, you have to wear a lot of hats. You, you know, you, you have a lot of responsibilities and you just, you can't get away from it. Like you can't say, oh, I want to start a business, but I hate selling things. Well, how the hell do you plan on making money out of your business if you hate selling? Well, you got to find a partner, right? Who loves selling. That's what it amounts to. I mean, like a, going back to the multiple hats thing, a good example of this is I have this tournament masterclass that came out on poker coaching about six months or so ago. And it took like literally six months to get the PowerPoint in really good shape. It's very, very long. Um, I don't know, 3,000 slides, 2,000 slides, only, like a lot. It took forever way longer than I thought it would. And I was, I was over it by the end. I'm like, <laughs> I was telling Justin, just, you know, finish this thing up, man. I don't, I don't want to touch this anymore. I'm over it. And, um, but then after that, that took forever, but then it was recording time and I was ready to record. Cause I was tired of like grinding this PowerPoint, trying to like make it look pretty, trying to get everything, you know, organized properly, et cetera. Right. And so then it was recording time. And then the thing ended up being like 45 hours long. So, you know, that probably took, I don't know, a month to record. So we had six months of making this PowerPoint. Then we had a month of recording. After that, I was done with that, you know? And um, then it's marketing time. But I have a marketing team. So that, that, that's good. That's not on my plate. Yeah. Then you have a million people asking questions. So you got to answer their questions. So uh, then there's that job. That's okay. I don't mind, right? I know what I signed up for. Exactly. It's it's part of the process. And it, I mean, it's like just playing poker, right? Like you, you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. And ultimately you're just trying to have more good than bad and um, just keep on putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Do uh, your best to enjoy your time is what it amounts to. If you're not enjoying your time, maybe you should be doing it a little bit differently. Absolutely. And for what it's worth, I love, I love all the things that I do. Uh, sometimes I get a little annoyed, but I think that's, that's probably normal with just human beings in, in general. I'd probably get annoyed doing anything in the world, no matter what it would be eventually. If you do anything for a long time, or if you, uh, you know, deal with annoying things, you will get annoyed. That's how it goes. You just have to make sure that you're you're making the most of your opportunities, right? For sure. And I want to go take a time machine, go back a little bit and go like all the way back to the beginning to when you were getting involved with poker. And I want to ask you, who is your biggest influence in getting into poker, becoming a poker professional and why? getting into poker uh i was playing magic the gathering tournaments way back then and there was a guy named jake who uh, lived in the junkyard he he had no money he, he was homeless he lived in cars in the junkyard and he decided one day to introduce us to poker tournaments and we would buy in for 10 10 cent value magic cards each so a dollar time out and, time out this jake guy lives in yeah. a junkyard he's homeless H- how are you interacting with him he just he lives he plays in magic the gathering tournaments he's quite good at magic the gathering okay okay <laughs> he would come and play the ten dollar buy-in magic tournament win 30 bucks 40 bucks 50 bucks every week and that'd be his money um he was a very short guy had a gigantic red beard giant red hair he looked like the the guy from lord of the rings you know what i'm talking about the gimli yeah that's it looked just like him so anyway um, I was friendly with him. We were friends. I would drive him home, give him money for ramen when I was, you know, I, I had a job. I worked at an airport getting $10 per hour. So I was, I was rich, I guess. And anyway, one day after a magic tournament, he said, let's play this poker tournament. So he basically just beat us for like a month or two straight. And I started studying it because I realized this is clearly a skill game because he's just winning every time. He's either he's cheating or he's good. Did some diligence, found out he's probably just way better than us. He wasn't good, but he was better than everybody else who didn't know what they're doing. 
And so I started studying. I bought a few poker books, studied up on that, put $50 on party poker, started playing poker and ran it up. So I have to thank Jake for getting me into poker. So you're telling me that Jake, homeless Jake that lived in a junkyard is the one responsible for Jonathan Little and this empire that you've built for yourself. That's uh, pretty incredible, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, random, huh? It, <laughs> you never know how it's going to work out. Yeah, it is very random. Um, I had Martin Jacobson on, release his episode quite recently, and he told me that he was training to be a chef and he had a gig lined up in, um, I believe it, it was somewhere in Spain and he was ready to go and he quit his job and his connection for the job he was supposed to be getting ghosted him, just disappeared off the planet. And he, he never got that chef job, but he, he quit his other job. And so he just kept playing poker more. And then that's how he Basically, that was what led to him uh, pursuing his career in poker. So it's very weird how these like kind of small things um, are so influential. Yeah, I mean, you never know what's going to open a door to something you, you didn't necessarily know about, which is why it's important to try to interact with a lot of people and try to add value. I was talking to Phil Helmuth about this. I had to interview them on my, on my uh, YouTube channel, youtube.com slash poker coaching. Check it out. And um, he basically said something to the effect of you're always where you need to be at, at this point in time. And you need to try to make the most use of this opportunity. And, you know, love or hate Phil Helmuth, there's a lot to that, right? Like a lot of people squander their opportunities. And I know I squandered a lot of opportunities as a young poker player because I would be sitting there playing live poker with headphones and a hoodie on and sunglasses, not talk to anyone because that was the image I wanted to portray. And while it maybe was a rather, uh, I don't know, strong type image, it also led to me making no friends at the poker table. And that's not ideal. You'd rather make friends and no, you can still battle hard at the poker table, but they can help you in life, right? And there's there's a lot of value to that. Funny enough, the way I met my marketing partner, I just broken up with my uh, fiance a long time ago. And I was randomly at a casino near my house in Vegas. And I was uh, drinking way too much wine and betting on sports like a degenerate. <laughs> And they had a $50 buying poker tournament. So I randomly stumbled over there and played the $50 buying poker tournament and was, you know, goofing off having fun. And my marketing partner straight out of college decided, came up and talked to me and said, Hey, will you make me a training video and we'll try to sell it? Probably drunk. I said, sure. <laughs> and so we did that and it went well and, and we're still together now. He's my longest relationship. Um, another influence that helped me a lot in poker was a guy named Bill Seymour. He's an older poker player. He played a lot in the eighties and nineties. And he had a site called pokercoaching.com. He actually gave it to me after a while. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're, we're friendly and he's an older guy. He must be, I don't know, 75 or something like that at this point. And he taught me a lot about just being sane and not being a young, dumb idiot. There's a lot of value in having an older poker player or someone who has done it for 20 or 30 years, whatever it was, tell, teach you everything you need to know to not be a fish. <laughs> and that was very beneficial too, because I'm sure I was just, I was young and dumb like most kids are. <laughs> so, yeah. and, uh, he helped me be a little bit more sane. When, when we were coming up, I mean, we lacked mentorship, uh, virtual or really any kind of mentorship. You know, we're just kind of making it up as we go along um, because they, we didn't have access to these kind of resources that people have access to these days. It's hard for me to imagine this drunken Jonathan Little Degenning out on sports bets. Uh, it's hard for me to reconcile the you today with the you then. It's kind of hilarious, really. Yeah, well, 
Yeah. <laughs> the good old days, huh? The good old days. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. Yeah, before boot camp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site. Kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And preflop boot camp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that, that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post bootcamp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month. The price is $199 and your link to join is ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. I have a question. This is somewhat random, unprepared. Uh, I have a couple of friends that I made in LA who are just some of my favorite people that I've met in poker, Mike Katz, Jesse Yaganuma. Uh, they're both crushers. I think Mike is like a real estate agent now. I'm not, I assume Jesse's still just crushing the cash game streets. How did you meet those guys? Like, cause they, they're also very, very close to you along with Shannon Shore, I believe. Right. Yeah. So we, I, I'm in a few group chats and they're, they're in all of them. Uh, it's, it's random, right? There's like mostly cash game players. I'm a tournament player, but 
I met them through Shannon Shore. Um, it was always a running joke back in the day, like, oh, Shannon, he, he's going to go talk to him. He talked to everybody. Mm-hmm. So Shannon would always talk to everybody. I was a little bit more shy. Shannon would go make friends with people. And I was good friends with Shannon. So he made friends with them. I would inevitably eventually become friends with him. And I think we all roomed together at the World Series. Must have been like my second World Series out there, I think. I don't know. Shannon met some friends, so we roomed with them. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, they, they're still both in L.A. I think they do pretty well at the Daily Fantasy Sports and at poker. Still uh, live cash games for the most part, although they play tournaments too. Yeah. So I, I met them through Shannon. I met a lot of people I met in poker through Shannon because he had a little bit more success than I did at poker Um I guess we had success before I did. We were both playing a lot of sit and goes together. And funny enough, I met Shannon because I, he was in the chat box of a $200 buying sit and go on party poker, berating the fish. And I'm like, <laughs> sir, don't berate the fish. Send me a message on AIM back in the day, you know, yeah, American that, Online Instant Messenger. It's so standard. That's how, uh, that was how I became friends with Vanessa Selps was like just chatting in party poker chat and like, yeah. oh yeah, send me a message on AIM. And like, it. that's just, how that's just how connections were made in the poker world back then it's pretty funny thinking thinking back yeah and so we we became friends talked on instant messenger um he won a seat to go play the aussie millions and i think he took fourth place or in it or something like that for like 250k which was tons of money and um then we like the next poker trip we went to austria together that was my first trip anywhere and um then we just started traveling a ton like we would always travel together room together and you know made good friends Having those friends are is so beneficial to the life of a professional poker player, especially if you're traveling around. I mean, the reason that I, I mentioned Mike and, and Jesse specifically are because when I met them at the stage of life I was in, I was like in full time grind. Like I live at the Commerce Casino. I play poker 60 hours a week. I take Sundays off. This is what I do. I don't go out late at night. I don't drink. I take care of myself and my body and Mike and Jesse just weren't fucking having it. You know, they did, they were just like, <laughs> they just were not having it. They're like, no, you're going to go out tonight with us. You're going to have dinner. We're going to drink. We're going to have fun. And I'm like, I don't want to They're like, no, you will. Um, and, and it turned out to be just such a blessing, uh, just getting, you know, introduced and making friends with all the other players that were playing and those re- relationships in that time is, it was just so valuable, right? It's so like, it's such an obvious thing that human relationships have a value, but when you're just in this grind, I'm going to make money mode. Sometimes you can prioritize that over friendships and relationships, but I have no idea how much money I won or lost in those days. But I do know that those friendships mean more than all the money that was won or lost. That is true. I've never really sat down and thought about it, but like, they're really good friends. Actually, I, I messaged Katz and Shannon just the other day to say, uh, if I die, will you teach my wife how to get my cryptocurrencies off my computer? <laughs> and um, I mean, like, for real, like, those are the two people I messaged. Because, and, and that's, it's good to have people who you know you can trust to you know, not, not run off with your cryptocurrency money and do the right thing, even if you're dead. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they will run off with my crypto. <laughs> but now we have it here for forever. So they, yeah. now they can't do this. It's documented but, so I can track them down. I've never really thought about it in the terms of, though, I gave up perhaps some money, perhaps because, you know, play hung over here a day or two, or you play tired a day or two in exchange for making like good lifelong friends. But I, I suppose that is that's the trade off I made as well. Of course, though, you have to make sure you do not go overboard. There are a lot of poker players who have the grind mode like you did for a while or like I did, and then they just 
completely go off the deep end and they want to go party all the time. This happens to a lot of people at the World Series of Poker. They go out there to Vegas. They fully plan on playing all summer. They're going to grind hard. They play for a week. Either they get rich or they get broke, one of the two. And then they're like, oh, well, something's changed. I'm going to go off now. And they just like go to the club every night. And next thing you know, the summer's over and they, they are broke, whether they started broke or they started rich. And they go off the deep end. So you have to make sure you still maintain a decent amount of discipline. But there certainly is a lot of value in making friends, interacting with people and trying to yeah. enjoy yourself. Going out, living living a, a fun life. I mean, you know, there, sometimes you can go out and get drunk and pass out and it's just going to be okay. As long as you don't do it every single night, right? And to be fair, there are other ways to go have fun. I want to make it clear. You don't have to go and be an alcoholic. You're allowed to go to a sporting event. You're allowed to go to a concert. You're allowed to go hiking, you can go boating, whatever. So uh, I am not advocating <laughs> copious amounts of alcohol. No, this is just our experience with hanging out, right? <laughs> I have had copious amounts of alcohol, but it, it, I'm not advocating that. I do my best to, to not, not go off on that so much because then, then I don't sleep and, and my belly hurts and my brain hurts and uh, I don't need that in my life right now. I'm too old for that. Yeah. If you drink enough alcohol, you eventually realize you don't need to drink the alcohol or you don't want to drink the alcohol. So there's a lot of value in, in that. But that said, like if I could tell my kids a few things to not do, I would tell them to never drink alcohol. And I would tell them to never be degenerate gamblers because even if those things did not wreck me, they perhaps could have. And I've seen them wreck plenty of people to the point that I'd rather tell my kids to not get on that than to play around with it, even if it does perhaps provide some joy. Yeah, alcohol for me has never resonated. I if I if I want a, a reality distorting substance, I think uh, edibles for me are is the way to go because they help me sleep naturally. They help me sleep at night, first of all. And second of all, I'm not like hungover. My sleep is not horrendous and I wake up and I'm ready to go the next day. So like, yeah, I, I alcohol, I, I have a problem, right? Like I can't drink, I can't take one shot of something because if like one shot is good, then like 12 shots is better. And, and I wake up the next day. I no, I shit you not. Like when I was 21, drink so much that like I'm on the couch for like three solid days straight, just cannot function or do anything. And yeah, I, I think I have a, a weak constitution anyways. It relates to like hangovers and stuff like that. So I just can't, I can't do it. Yeah. I mean, you got, drinking's a tough thing because there's lots of social pressure that said, you can just surround yourself by people with people who don't necessarily go out to drink. That's just the thing they do not do. Tough thing is, is that in the American culture and a lot of European culture, et cetera, that's just what people do. I found that I can have exactly one drink. If I go over one drink, there may be a problem, but if I, I can usually set the, goal, the uh, rule of you will have one today. Like if there's a poker tournament the next day. I know at most I'm having one, usually zero. If there's a poker tournament in a week, eh, you can probably do whatever you want. Poker tournament just ended. There's nothing going on for another week. You can probably do whatever you want. But I, tr I, I'm, I have a pretty, pretty hard rule most of the time to have one because if I know if I go over one, it'll eat ten. If it's <laughs> ten, then we end up in the gutter. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, if Mike and Jesse are around, I don't believe you that you can only drink one if they're if they're pushing it because they, man, they are bad influences. Yeah, they are really good at pushing stuff, uh, and yeah, they're. But they're really just amazing, amazing human beings. Um, right before COVID happened, actually, February last year, maybe I mean, COVID, was, COVID was probably just starting. We uh, went to New Orleans for a bachelor party and it was like an insane party every day. And uh, uh, I was pretty convinced after I got back, once people started talking about COVID, I'm like, yeah, I must have had COVID. I felt like death when I came home. 
but no, I just drank a lot. <laughs> yeah. You, 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 it was self-induced. Totally it was partying for four days straight. Actually, it was like a week. It was a week. It was a week in New Orleans. And uh, it's probably a little bit too long for a bachelor party in New Orleans. And it's unsurprising that Mike and Jesse were, were involved in that whole ordeal. Do you have, if you could pin down a, a session of yours is particularly memorable or your favorite poker session ever, does anything spring to mind? No, I remember some bad ones. I don't particularly remember the good ones. Okay, let's I mean, talk about the bad ones. I remember one bad one. First thing that came to mind when you said this, it was at the World Series. I was having a bad World Series of poker summer. I was, I don't know, did, did not do well in the tournaments. I've had two summers at the World Series with zero caches, despite playing a lot. You talk to basically every good pro. They'll tell you they probably had one out of 15, give or take, where you just get completely crapped on all summer. Um, I've had two of them. Also had a few good ones, but you know, this was one of the bad ones. And at the end of the summer, I think I had like, I must've had like exactly 40 K left on me or something like that. So I bought into a, I think it was 100, 200 game and we're playing whatever. After a while I raised with pocket nines under the gun, a very, very, very recreational bad player, minimum re-raise. So I go like 1200, he goes 2200 or something like that. Fine. I call you have the aces or maybe the Kings, right? Um, flop comes Jack nine, three, we get the whole 40 K in there each. And actually I think it was like 60 K in there each. Cause I was up a little bit and, um, the board runs out queen 10. So Jack nine, three, queen 10, ace king gets there. Kings gets there. Queens gets there. Um, I table my hand because whatever he called me, um, he says, nice hand. You got it. And then he goes to muck his cards. And then the guy next to him says, oh no, you won. No, 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 no. And then no, he's no, looking no. at his right hand like, no, I don't. He's going to muck it. And as he was going to muck, the guy rips the cards out of his fingers and t- tables the cards for him. No. <laughs> he has the pocket kings, of course. And um, that, that was pretty tilting to me. That was like my last 40K I had on me or whatever it was. And, oh, and that, that is how I lost. To be fair, I lost the hand. I'm not mad I lost the hand. I guess, am I even mad? I'm mad that the guy uh, said something. That said, if you think about it, that's definitely the smart thing to do. Because then you stack Jonathan Little and this guy who can't even read the board it's a hold of a 120k stack or whatever it was. So it was clearly the uh, quote unquote most profitable play. But um, I, I was very, very frustrated at that. I got in my car and I like booked an airplane ticket. I didn't even go home. I just like got an airplane out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Take me somewhere, anywhere but here. Yeah, I'm leaving. I, I don't want to be here. Um, that's that actually, that's happened to me before. And I almost never get mad at the table or say anything to anyone and that was an instance where i did get pretty annoyed when (laughs) like it it was uh i had nines too this is kind of funny the flop was like jack nine deuce we get it in and like turn queen river queen and it wasn't 120k it was probably around 10k or 12k and the dude is like looking at his cards and like slides them towards the muck and the guy next to him is just like, wait, no, no, no. You, you have the winning hand. You have a full house. And he like stopped and grabbed his hand and looked at it and turned it over. And he had Queen Jack. And I fucking lost my mind. How like, do you know he has Queen Jack? Like of the hands you could, like I get my guy missing a four card straight. How's your guy miss <laughs> when he turns the queen? Isn't he out a little bit happy? I have no <laughs> earthly idea, but like I lost my shit. Like because... Man, like that's just a thing that you just you're you don't do. Like the player's responsible for reading their own hand. Like, oh God. Yeah, I, I don't exactly remember how it went down. I remember I was enraged. 
and um, who knows what I did? I, I don't know. <laughs> you flew. You flew out of Vegas. I, I know I left. Yeah, you have no memory of it. It just is like burned out of your mind, which is probably for the best. No, I feel I probably said something very rude and aggressive and mean that oh, I, I would not prefer to repeat here today. I and and I think it is very justifiable given the situation that players are responsible for reading their own hands. It's tough though. Like I certainly get the idea. Why did that guy? Uh, why did that guy do that? Because he wanted the fish to have the money. Like, obviously, right? Because you want the fish with the, all the money. So it's tough, right? Like, do you piss off the pro at the table? I mean, I don't, I don't remember who the guy is. <laughs> so I, I don't even know. It, it cost him literally nothing. And, um, you know, for me to have har- harsh feelings or whatever in the future. Because um, I don't even know who it was. <laughs> and it let him be at the table with a guy who can't read his hand with 120K. So clearly it's the most profitable thing to do. And if you're playing a cash game, for a lot of people, their thought process is only what is the most profitable thing for me to do? whether that's the right thing or not. Um, right. I mean, right. Sort of like an ethics question, right. I mean, and ethics are all over the place. So yeah. in theory, if the guy wanted to make as much money as possible, it was definitely the right thing to do. Yeah. I, I, I still just, didn't enjoy it. No, I, <laughs> I can't imagine you did. And I think that at the end of the day, I've got, at the end of the day, I have to be able to live with myself and put my head on my pillow and like ethically and integrity wise, that's just not a thing. Even if I do not like the person that it's against, like I have something personal against them, I'm still not going to interfere because it, it's just not this, my place. These are just straight up your ethics, though, yeah. to some extent, right? Like, and you set your own rules. So why is this thing something that you have decided is unethical? This happens before a lot of people with slow playing, right? Like I've never slow played anybody in my life. Not slow played, slow rolled. I've never slow rolled anybody in my life. Yeah, where you have the best hand on the river, you like make them think they win just to like torture them a bit. Um, that said, there's nothing, there's no rule saying you can't slow roll people, and so some people will actively slow roll their opponents, and and uh, some people think they're like the worst humans in the world. But there's no rule that says you can't slow roll people. I don't think there's a rule that you can't say, sir, you have the best hand. I don't think there's a rule that act- actually says that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think pretty, it says I'm players. Sure there's not. It says players are responsible for reading their own hands, right? Sure. That's that's a thing. I, sure, I don't know. But uh, somebody else could read it if they feel like it. That says that says something yeah. about you. <laughs> if I muck my own hand, that's my problem. It doesn't say uh, if this guy reads my hand, that's my problem. It's true. So anyway, these are your own rules that you made up. Sure. And there are a lot of rules in life that people make up. And to be fair, somebody made up the rules. So it's this weird thing where like you can kind of do whatever you want. That said, um, I, I found that you should typically try to make people happy whatever that means. And um, that usually works out better than trying to maximize your equity in terms of dollars in every spot. Yeah. I mean, really, if you want to go super philosophical, we like morality is just a set of rules that you believe and integrity is you following your own moral code and from person to person, moral codes can be different. So integrity can be very different as well. So there, there is uh, a bit of subjectivity in that sure. and like you said that you wouldn't be able to live with yourself if you did what the person do, did, did to me and you where they called out the other player's hand or whatever but at the same time maybe that guy could not live with himself if he let the pro win that money unjustifiably yeah. because pro sure. didn't have the best hand i did not have the best hand i lost right i had the worst hand on the river you had the worst hand on the river you're supposed to lose so maybe that guy couldn't have slept with himself or lived with himself if he did not do that yeah so, i mean it's funny thinking about it, but you could be absolutely right. And I guess like at the end of the day, like I said, it's just doing the thing that resonates with you. And then at the end of the day, that's all you can do. And that's all you really have control over. 
Yeah, one thing teaching people to play poker has helped me with is just learning to be like empathetic to some extent, being able to put myself in somebody else's shoes and ask, why are they doing this? Is there some logical reason? Is the reason reasonable, right? Like, I, I'm sure that I despise that person who took that 120K from me back in the day. But like now I get it, you know, like I would not have done it, but I get it. It's reasonable. And I don't really have that many hard feelings or I'm not unhappy. I'm not so unhappy about it, right? Yeah. As um, we get older, I think we get less, we probably get less judgy about questionable behavior or even things. We we get less judgy about even labeling something as questionable behavior, right? We kind of dive dive deep in it. There are some things that happen like in the poker space that I think lots of people will just adamantly disagree with that I'm like, yeah, it's it's not good, but it's a thing, you know, like the the whole jungle man thing is like the the ghosting situation was like, yeah, it's it's not good, but like whatever. It's not like on my top hundred horrible things that people have done to get up in arms about it, I guess. Yeah, the poker space is kind of a weird one because some things feel very dirty, like Mike Possel, whereas other things feel less dirty, like um, you know, ghosting someone. Um, that said, if you do something that is against the rules of your site, you are live to get punished, and um, you should get punished if you're breaking the rules, right? I've broken Absolutely. rules on some sites. I've been punished. ACR banned me a while back because I uh, talked shit about them, and they didn't like that. And apparently, that's against the rules. They can ban you for any reason, whatever, whatsoever. And if they think making fun of their avatars and saying that their site goes down a lot is justifiable reason to be banned, they can ban me. So they banned me, right? Oh, you made jokes too. Don't don't forget the jokes that you made about. I made their, jokes. Yeah, they're they're pros. Um, you losing all the hands that you play against their pros. No, just most of them. Just most of them. <laughs> Because their pros are great poker players, you know? Um, so I, uh, you know, you make jokes, whatever. Anyway, but you get what I'm saying, right? I broke uh, of the course. terms and conditions of the site, as does everyone else who plays there. But I, I broke the rules. You're not allowed to do anything that they think is out of line. Therefore, they can ban you. If you ghost somebody on a site, that's against the rules on some sites, not all sites, on some sites, and yeah, they can I, ban you. I don't think that, I think this was like a decentralized app that's like its own wild, wild west type situation. Yeah. Um, if you play on a decentralized app or whatever, if there are no rules about these things, you can do whatever you want. Maybe the people you're playing against won't like it. You may be banned from the games, which is actually kind of a big issue if you play big high stakes games because people don't like you. If the few key people don't like you, you are out. And to be fair, if the few key people like you, uh, you're in. There's some... Uh, <laughs> It's gonna sound bad, but they're like hardcore criminals who are playing a lot of these big games on the on the um, unlicensed, unregulated apps right now, and they're just like straight up cheating people, super using, and that's just what you open yourself up to, right? And you got to be careful whenever you get out of line. And I think an issue a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that in poker, doing things that are out of line and some and to some extent become the norm. Like um, where I grew up, it was bad to gamble, right? It was thought to be a bad thing, yet uh, I gamble every day. So, um, But I don't feel bad about going to play poker or, you know, if I go and play a hand of blackjack or make, then I make a sport, but I don't feel bad about it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like I'm going to hell or something. But a lot right. of people feel that way. Um, eventually, if you, let's say, ghost on somebody's account every day, that just becomes normal. That's just how you play cards, right? So poker world is definitely a weird one. And I have I have learned to try to not get out of line and offend the people who make the rules. Because if you offend the people who make the rules, they are alive to attempt to punish you. Yeah, it's basically long story short, we need regulation. And two, like like we said earlier earlier in the interview, just kind of tying this together, where 
coming up, we didn't really have mentors. And so a lot of like the rules of online poker have been created by 20 something year old humans who are just figuring things out like as they go along. And, and so you can see that like these gray areas and these like integrity issues, there's just, yeah, lots of room for conflict, especially when we all, online poker for the most part is unregulated in the United States. And so, yeah. I mean, I would recommend everyone treat everyone like you would like to be treated. Ideally, you'd like to be treated reasonably. You would prefer to probably know who you're playing against than not. You'd prefer that uh, you're not getting stone cheated on the games. And so, you know, like, treat other people like you'd be treated and don't approach life from the point of view of, I want to make as much money as possible. I do not care who I cheat. That's very New Testament of you. Yes. Yeah, don't Rome. don't be a cheater is what it amounts to. <laughs> don't beat it. Don't be a cheater. Like beat people, but don't cheat people. Like yeah. that's that's beat people the, don't cheat people. That's 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 my motto over here. There you go. What, what do you think is a weakness that you've had related to your poker game? And then we'll just say like historically a historical weakness. And what steps did you take to overcome said weakness? Well, if it's a weakness, I still have it. I mean, look, <laughs> to some extent, I am not the best poker player, right? There are a lot of spots that I study after the fact and realize I have screwed up, right? Like um, for the long time, I was way too weak and tight from the big blind, where I would either fold too often from the big blind or I would call too often, then check fold too often, right? And um, I, I think I've gotten substantially better at this. But even then, there's still a lot of spots that I miss. I mean, I've done a lot of solver work for the content at pokercoaching.com, and there's a lot of spots you're supposed to have like 10% stone garbage check raise bluffs out of position. And how do you pick those 10% garbage hands, right? Because you may have, let's say half your range is check folding, but you know, 10% of your range is hands that are like pretty logical check folds, but you're supposed to raise with them. So how do you pick those 10%? Do you actually make the play with that 10% in high pressure spots? So I think that's something a lot of people struggle with. People tend to do even worse from out of position than they should in most scenarios. And um, that's, a, that's a spot that I'm always working on. And, you know, as you study various stack depths, you learn more and more, like um, as you get shallower and shallower, you should be leading with a wider and wider range compared to when you're deep stacked from a GTO point of view. And figuring out those kind of spots is very, very valuable. And, you know, just doing more and more work is what it amounts to looking at all of the spots, trying to note the differences between other spots, right? Like 20 big blinds from the big blind is very different than 10 big blinds from the big blind. And, you know, you learn the things that you should be doing to adjust and, and when you should be making those adjustments. But you know, poker is a big game. It's a hard game. There's a bunch of spots. And even though a lot of the spots look similar, they are all kind of different. And I guess what it amounts to is I'm always trying to learn more of the spots. Yeah, just uh, recognition that, like, there's more to learn. And there's always more to learn because this game is fucking complex it's a hard game i don't know if any any of you listening to this know this poker poker is a tough game to to crack yeah there's a there's a neat spot i was looking at the other day where if you're like 12 big blinds deeper shallower maybe 15 big blinds deeper shallower if let's say late if early position raises and you're in the big blind you're supposed to call still a pretty wide range in tournaments and on exactly king xx boards you're supposed to have a pretty big leading range which is kind of weird to think why on king xx only and also low card board but why king xx not jack xx right it's because you're defending big blind with like every king x in that scenario and under the gun is not raising every king x or raising some king x but not every king x and so you actually have a whole lot of kings in your range so in that spot you get to lead with a lot of stuff for a small size because you essentially have way more effective nut hands in your range than your opponent right 
And that's a like really abnormal spot and not really logical because normally when you're out of position playing deep stack there, you don't want to be getting it all in with like the king two on, you know, king, king, anything, anything really, because you're going to be dominated when a lot of money goes in. But when you're playing 10 big blinds deep or whatever, you just don't care. So you, you can be pretty happy leading small with some king XX and then also some total garbage, right? Like we're talking about comes king, king seven, three, you can, you can lead with random bad draws and it's neat, neat stuff to see. But if you don't go through and study all these spots, you'll never find it. You have to inquire about all the spots. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like you, you mentioned position by the way, which is like you, it's something that like you hear over and over and over again, just like how position is so paramount of importance. And I was going through the data building uh, fish in a barrel, which is my course on sea betting against, against fish, uh, recreational players. And like, what I realized is like, just naturally when, when the fish is in position, they lose half as much as when they're out of position. This is just like an organic thing that happens. Like, and so even with players that really don't understand all the things that are in play and what's going on, their loss rate is half as much when they're in position compared to when they're out of position. And it just, goes to show you that position is probably no matter how many times people say how important it is, it's probably still underthought about as it relates to just how valuable it is to be in position. For sure. Uh, and that's why you have to perhaps spend even more time working on the common spots where you are going to be out of position. So you want to be looking at spots where you raise early position in the button calls or you raise cutoff in the button calls. Cause if someone's going to call, it's more likely or most likely going to be the player on the button. Right. And I mean, like a good example of this, I just used to raise a continuation bet every time when it came jack 6-2 when I was under the gun and button called. But turns out from a GTO point of view, that's actually pretty bad. You're supposed to be doing a decent amount of checking with all sorts of stuff. Like you're always using a really mixed strategy with every hand when you are out of position and the button calls you. So the question is then, do you still just bet every time because people overfold or do you try to play closer to GTO, right? And, you know, one strategy is going to be definitively better than the other one. And it's up to you to figure that out. So, yeah, yeah, being out of position is tough. I would recommend everyone play pretty tight from out of position, pretty loose from in position. But you should be defending the big blind a lot. And that's the tough spot because everybody knows at this point in time, or most people know, to defend their big blind pretty wide against small raises. But they are then just check folding a lot, like a lot, a lot. Like they say you're supposed to check fold, I don't know, 50% in some spot. They may check check fold 65%. And that's going to result in the preflop wide calls just torching money because they're check folding way too often, right? So you got to make sure you know how to battle well in the common spots. And that's what my tournament course does. It goes through all the common spots, in position, out of position with various stack depths to ensure that you have seen examples of all these scenarios. And we talk about how to play your entire range in these spots. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like once the pot odds model comes into play and you recognize like, Oh, I need to be defending like any two suited cards. Well, now all of a sudden you're finding yourself post flop with any two suited cards and realizing like, Oh shit, I've got a lot more hands that I need to do stuff with. And it's just very easy to overfold, get out of whack and just make some pretty clear mistakes. And, you know, like you said, some intuition will only take you so far. And there are some things that you have to be doing regularly that intuitively do not make a ton of sense, but you just have to do it anyway. Yeah, bluffing is a lot of fun. I think you'll, I think most people decide, decide if they get out there and they try it. Um, a lot of people just don't want to be out of their comfort zone. Talking to a lot of very recreational players, like, oh, I don't want to make that play because it makes me uncomfortable. But 
Like in my mind, when I'm playing poker, comfort never really enters my mind. Like this is either the most profitable play or it's not. And anytime you make the play that's not the most profitable play, you're giving money to the other people, not you. You're taking the money that you worked really hard for and giving it away. So do I want to give away all my money? The answer is obviously no. Maybe by the time I die, we'll give it all away, but I don't want to give it all away now, right? So this is a spot where you just have to ask, like, am I trying to win at this game or am I not? And not, am I going to feel comfortable with my decision? Also, a lot of people who are recreational just want to play poker. They want to be sitting at the table. And if they happen to lose all the money they bring in a cash game, or if they happen to get stacked in a tournament, they have to go home. They have to leave the table, right? And that is devastating to them, especially if they only get to play once every week or once every month or whatever. But you got to get all that out of your mind if your goal is to actually win as much money as possible from poker, even anywhere near as much money as possible from poker. Um, I've been reviewing some hands on my YouTube channel from uh, the $10,000 buy-in tournament that GG runs every week. They have a $10,000 tournament, gets a good guarantee, and there's it's always a really stacked final table. And... Every week, whenever I'm reviewing the people who are like making these deep runs, if let's say 15% of the field normally cashes, their cash rate's like 13% or maybe like 16%, right? Like not a big cash rate by any means. A lot of people think the goal is to cash and get in the money in tournaments. But you look at all the biggest winners between like 13 and 18% cash rate, which is you know, roughly normal, right? Except for these players, when they make deep runs, they have all the chips and they win the tournament. And um, that kind of thing is beneficial. There's a good online player, Lena. Nicholas, Nicholas, uh, last name starts with A. It's not coming to me right now. Anyway, Super Crusher has infinite winnings, 13% cash rate. No problem. <laughs> like yeah. $10 million in cashes only on GG, which is just like ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. And, you know, poker, if you're trying to play poker because you want to always feel comfortable, you've got another thing coming because th- you will never play a cash game. You will never play a tournament where you just get it in with top set and aces every time and win every pot. And there's no marginal type situation, right? Like poker is just, it, it's a, a minefield of marginal spots and, and just trying to figure things out and, and feeling uncomfortable. And like, you just got to get used to it. You have to get over that. I don't want to feel, I don't want to get involved in a marginal spot. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. That's what the game is. This is the game that you are playing. Um, so you just got to, you know, you just got to put on your, your, big boy or big girl pants and accept that sometimes not everything's cut and dry and you just got to do the best you can. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people come from playing small stakes cash games where being kind of tight and straightforward isn't all that bad if your opponents are just literally giving it away. Right. But as you move up to you know even one, three or two, five or something like that live in cash games or any tournaments higher than like $50 buying tournaments live, you got to get in there and you got to mix it up a little bit because your opponents are not going to be so terrible to the point that, you know, I kid by name? <laughs> the interview right now, your opponents are not going to be so terrible to the point that they are just going to let you like get paid off maximally every single time. Right. Right. I mean, you can of course do some things that will cultivate an image despite being tight that will result in you getting paid off a little bit more often. Um, a good example of this would be someone like Scotty Wynn, who's always, chatting and wearing flashy clothes and taking his time such as like oh i'm thinking about playing no but i'm just gonna fold again and that makes people think he's in the action to some extent but i would rather not do any of that stuff and instead just play good fundamentally sound poker get in there and battle and you know make make good plays is what it amounts to yeah and 
the game gets more nuanced, especially as you move up stakes, right? Like we I had a discussion with some some lower level players on this hand where basically the board was something like four, five, seven, eight, and they had sixes and they opted to take a check call line on the turn and like just chaos ensued where somebody was like, why would you call with a straight there? Like the river paired the board and completed the flush. And they're like, you just let the, you just let the board pair and the flush got completed. Why would you call? And it's like, because you need to call with some straights so that your range is protected. So you can call river bets. If you always raise with your straights, well, then that means when you call the turn, you don't have straights and you just get bluffed on tons of rivers. And that's like a, that's a jump in level of play from like the super low stakes games where like nobody knows nobody cares nobody's paying attention so you can just always raise there with your straights but as soon as people pay attention as soon as people uh recognize that like your range is capped in these spots the, the best players are going to put the screws to you and it's going to be tough sledding moving forward yeah, I mean, if I'm playing against someone who I think is a recreational-ish player and I bet the turn on a four straight turn and they think for a while and just like kind of reluctantly call and the river's a blank and I have nothing, you can be very sure I'm going to be blasting it because that seems like a very free pot against people who raise all of their good hands in that scenario, right? You always want to make sure that whenever you bet, your range is not all good hands or all bad hands. And you also want to make sure that whenever you check slash call, your range is not all really good hands or really bad hands. You want to mix it up. Um, something else I do in my tournament course is go through the solver and basically show how the solver breaks down your range. And in every spot, it always has some nuts, whether it's checking, whether it's betting, whatever, it's always doing its best to mix in a little bit of nuts here and there. And nuts are actually really good hands to just check with, even when you're out of position on river, because that lets you check raise sometimes. And that lets you get a few more bluffs in. And that makes it hard to play against. If you're easy to play against, well, you're not hard to play against, right? If you're easy <laughs> to play against, your bonus are just going to take all of your money very quickly. But yeah, a lot of people just want to be able to sit there and nut pedal, and that's fine against the absolute most maniacal, absurd players or calling stations that are extreme calling stations. But most people today in poker have gotten at least somewhat decent. They realize that if you haven't played a hand in an hour and you decide to put all your money in, you probably have something, and they're not going to pay off like you would like them to. Hate to bring right. it to you. And you always, everything sets up everything else, which is something that, like, I think that beginning level poker players don't realize is like if you want to have uh strong hands to induce bluffs with on the river then you have to call the turn with some strong hands like you know if you want to call down versus an over bluff line with some stronger hands well then you don't get to check raise those all the time on the flop because you need some on the turn and then you need some on the river as well so it's like basically every decision affects everything else and yeah it, it takes some time to sort of gain clarity of what's going on and how how you just you become super exploitable if like you're check raising all of your nuts on the turn always and you're playing against a good player who's just going to bluff you out of your shoes on the river when you don't raise the turn yeah as your opponents are more aggressive especially whenever you take a passive line as many people will be in the medium stakes that's just kind of like a tendency a lot of them have is you show weakness they're betting right if that's the type of player you're against, or if they're just good, strong, world-class players, I would venture to say you should be even more inclined to do more checking with your best hands out of position to give them every opportunity to take all of the hands that could potentially bluff and bluff all of them instead of, you know, if you bet, they're just going to fold all of them, right? Or- Absolutely. Yeah, I, I frame it to my students in a way of like, let's imagine that you, you see a flop and two bets go in. Like, say... Two bets go in post-flop. And now we're going to talk about how those bets go in. And like 
how those bets go in some ways are more valuable than other ways. And so like betting the flop villain, calling checking back turn and calling a river bet is more valuable than betting the flop, betting the turn, and then checking back the river. Because when you check back the turn, villain has bluffs in their range, right? So that river bet is more valuable because villains don't just always have something that they're having to call with. So even stuff like that is worthy of consideration that like two bets go in the pot post-flop. Those bets can have different values based on how the bets go in the middle. So like, how do you want those bets to go in the middle? And then kind of try to manufacture scenarios like that. For sure, for sure. Um, let's do lightning round here. And then I'm going to, I'm, I'm getting a massage and I don't have a car. So I'm going to run to the, <laughs> actually, uh, it'll be a nice walk in the sunshine to like half a mile away. Um, hey man, this is my first one in like a month. I, I'm, I've got my shots for COVID. I've done, like I told you, 11 podcasts this week. <laughs> I fucking deserve my massage. Um, <laughs> what's a purchase you've made in the last year? That's been impactful to your poker game. Doesn't necessarily have to be like poker training. Could be, you know, I've seen you chugging on some brain fuel stuff. Something could be a, you know, standing desk. Just something that's improved your life. So I wasn't going to mention brain fuel. I suppose we will still mention brain fuel. Brain fuel is a company I'm involved with at this point. I started off as a customer and I told him I liked it. And, you know, it's a, it's a beverage that essentially tries to give long lasting energy throughout the day, not in a like five hour energy or type thing where you're just like super jittery and pumped up, but more of it slowly releases. Apparently whenever you drink natural caffeine, if it is mixed with healthy fats, it slowly goes into your bloodstream also has lots and which, which like makes it last all day. So I used to drink something like six cups of coffee every single day, which is probably not ideal. <laughs> and um, now I wake up, I have one cup of coffee, but an hour later I'll have a brain fuel and I'm, I'm good for the rest of the day. So that, that's quite nice. I don't want to be having to go make cups of coffee every, every uh, two hours or whatever it is in order to just be halfway awake. Um, so people can check that out at B-R-E-I-N-F-U-E-L. You can use promo code POKERCOACHING to get 15% off. And I like it. I like it. They're working with a lot of other poker players, a lot of other people in the mind sport area, like video gamers, MMA fighters, um, doctors. Uh, the guy who made it is, is a doctor and he ha- would do long surgeries and he would realize after six hours of operating on someone, he'd start to get a little bit tired and jittery. So he designed his own thing that, that worked and he started letting other doctors use it. They liked it too. And uh, now it's brain fuel. So that has been very beneficial and I don't think I've actually bought anything in terms of like my poker setup in a long time, but I would recommend everyone get a good poker setup, right? Like if you're an online poker player, get a pretty good computer, right? Like you just got to pay, I hate to break it to you. To be fair, you don't even need like a super computer to run poker programs and hold a manager or anything like that. You can get just a pretty regular computer, but if you're going to be making content, get a good computer that can handle the content. If you're going to be sitting in a desk all day, get a standing desk. I'm at a standing desk, right? So get whatever you need to allow yourself to function well I'm trying to look for my mouse where'd i put my mouse <laughs> i'm going to show off my mouse but i don't even know where i put the thing oh here it is Jesus. uh can you all uh, you, some of you are listening here i have this mouse logitech m570 beat up be super beat up anyway logitech m570 mouse it's a trackball mouse yeah oh you have one there you go <laughs> it's really good and i used to have terrible carpal tunnel that's something that may save a lot of the online players i now i have no problems with this and i lose the mouse every once in a while it was behind my cup. Um, but it's really, really good. I like that a lot. 
And that's something I would recommend everyone look into if you ever have any issues with your wrist or if you play a ton of online tournaments and don't want to be going like this all day with your arm. Like my arm doesn't move. You just like move your thumb and you're good to go. Yeah, it's pretty hilarious. We have the same we have the same mouse. And I, I will say that I don't know how you lose your mouse because you barely even move it. It just sits in the same place. <laughs> I, I had my cup of water right in front of it. It was like oh. perfectly <laughs> behind it. I could not see it. <laughs> My kids randomly will take the mouse. They, they love coming in here and pressing the microphone and playing with the mouse and playing with my phone. And it, I believe it. In, in the morning, typically, I'll wake up, I'll, I'll have my brain feel, I'll go take a shower, I'll come back. When I come back, just like, this whole bookshelf is just a mess because the kids have come in and, and messed up everything. But that's okay. I don't mind. It's fun. Yeah, it's tornado. That's yes. th- They'll eventually get older and less interested in your books and mice and they like the, po- the poker bracelets. I'll they'll randomly take a WPT bracelet and I'll find it in the living room on the floor. So, oh, those are fun. nice. Th- those yeah, are. Yeah. Here's one right here. Again, if you're listening, sorry, you can't see it, but they'll just go in here. They'll pick these things up. Be like, oh, daddy, daddy, look, and then they'll run off. <laughs> and then they'll have to go find it. Yeah. It, just wait till one of them goes missing. Uh, I guess that's uh gets gets thrown in like an air duct or something. That's something I have a problem with with my wife. Anytime something's missing, I'll just say, oh, don't worry, it'll turn out. And she's like, but but maybe it won't. They had actually a baby doll, like a legitimate baby doll. It's like, you know, the size of your arm, right? Like a real baby doll. We, mm-hmm. They lost that baby doll. That baby doll's gone. I don't know where it went. They never take it outside. It's not in the house. I don't know where the baby doll is. <laughs> so they have, they have definitely lost a baby doll. But I always say, if anything's missing, don't worry. It'll turn up. Because it does turn up. We clean our house. Our house is not a mess. And um, everything turns up eventually. I say the Try same. Try not sweat the small stuff, right? Yeah, me, me neither. The kids have iPads and their iPads have gone missing and we don't have like a, a giant house. There's not many places for them to go. I don't know where they're at, but they've been missing for like two months. I just assume that one day they'll be in some ridiculous place. I'll stumble across them and then we'll have them, right? Like I, I, I'm like you in that way of just don't sweat it. Things typically work out. Like we, we just got vaccinated, right? We got our second dose and my wife was uh, freaking out about scheduling an appointment. And there wasn't any availability. Um, we were supposed to do it on like a Wednesday and we never got uh, the email reminder. And I'm like, babe, just don't worry about it. We got cards that say to come back on this day. Let's just show up and, and it, it'll just work out. And, and we showed up and they just let us through and it worked out. And yeah, I think some, a lot of times that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, my wife will remind me on the times that I'm like, it'll just work out. And then it, it doesn't, <laughs> she, she has to actually make it work out. But uh, yeah, I'm just, whatever, man, I, go with it. Things fix themselves eventually. I think a lot of good relationships are one where one person has the, ah, it'll all work out mentality. The other one has the, I better make sure everything works out mentality. And they kind of chill each other out, you know, and, or they, you know, find a happy medium and then everybody's happy. Maybe if you're always, oh, things will just work out. Well, sometimes nothing works out. Maybe it's and just good, better for us because maybe they, they, <laughs> they ensure that things work out. And so we're always validated. Yeah. I mean, that, that's sort of a saying I have my wife, like everything works out for us. She's like, yeah, because I make it sometimes. <laughs> like, so anyway, yeah, you gotta, you gotta find what works for you. Absolutely. Um, all right, man. Do you have any, any poker related things you've tried that hasn't, that haven't worked for you? A lot of stuff. <laughs> All sorts of exploitative plays, right? I mean, I'm always trying new things, trying different things. Um, there's lots of training sites out there. A lot of them have videos on straight up exploits against the player pool. And sometimes I think they work. Sometimes I think they don't work. <laughs> and 
that's that's important to know. I mean, a good exploit against most people is a triple barrel a lot. They check, you bet. They check, you bet. They check, you bet. And against a lot of people, you're going to print money. But against some people, you're just going to torture money. So you need to make sure you're finding the player pools that that tends to work out decently well in. And also, you want to make take, make sure you're taking good notes on who doesn't fold. Because some people know that a really easy exploit is just a triple barrel, right? So against those players, you, you bet a lot. I mean, a good example of this spot is, say they fold me in the small blind in small and medium stakes games online, I'm just going to raise preflop and triple barrel every time, blind versus blind, when they fold to me playing kind of deep stack. Mm-hmm. Because I know people overfold a little bit preflop, a little bit on the flop, a whole lot on the turn, and a whole lot on the river. So you can just triple it off, right? Um, that said, when you move to the higher stakes games, that does not work quite as well. You have to revert to a more GTO type strategy where you have some limps and you have some raises. So, I mean, I have good data to show that the, the raise triple barrel strategy is more profitable than the GTO strategy at small and medium stakes. So I do it, right? But that's because I have loads and loads of data. It's nice when you have data and you're not just like guessing or relying on somebody else to say what worked for them. So yeah, you know, I, I, I like triple barreling. Triple barreling is good today in the small and medium stakes games. There you go. There you go. And always bear in mind that with any exploit, when you are executing an exploit, it is naturally exploitable to you as well if they take the the right and appropriate strategy or the right and appropriate defense for the exploit. I, I think that the reason why the triple barrels work just uh, as an aside is just because what we were talking about earlier, how beginner players typically raise their strong hands on an earlier street. Mm-hmm. They don't realize that because they raise all their good hands on earlier streets, that leaves them with not a ton of good hands on the river. And when you're facing a triple barrel, that river bet is quite big. And when you have a hand like top pair weak kicker, it feels bad to call down with it. However, they don't realize that that is the best hand that they have there and they have to call down. Um, so that's like my data also reflects the same thing in cash games. Like in those like bet, bet, bet lines, rivers just get overfolded, turns get overfolded and flops are eh, flops are like defended kind of okay. Yeah, so, I mean, something that didn't work out, going back to your question, um, I was, for a long time, I was doing a limp everything in the small blind strategy in tournaments. You probably don't want to do that in cash games because they're going to rake you to death. But in tournaments, you, I, I have also good data on this for myself, from personally, where I know that I was making more limping 100% than playing GTO strategy again in all games. And that's pretty powerful too. But I have, I also know that I make more money by raising, right? So I played months limping 100% from small blind. And I made money, it looked good, but the alternative would have won more, right? So some people look at that and say, oh man, you squandered three months of time by doing this strategy, but you get data, right? You learn and um, you, you eventually figure out what's like, which play is better. There's only one way to learn. And it's funny because I've also uh, employed over the years, like a heavy limping strategy from the small blind versus the big blind. And yeah, it's just, it's always fun for me to at least engage my curiosity and get some information and feedback that, yeah, maybe maybe there's a different way to do something that outperforms what's conventional in the space. And just giving yourself the ability to kind of pursue that uh, in me is, for me, that's one of the reasons why I love poker so much. Yeah, one thing I would definitely recommend for a lot of people though is to not necessarily take your particular experience and assume that that is accurate because your experience in a lot of spots is going to be a somewhat small sample, especially if you're not a professional playing a ton of hands, right? Which is why you can kind of outsource that to training sites 
and watch like my content, right? I have loads of data to back up all the exploits I discuss that you probably do not have. And it's not just my data, it's data from a lot of other people that, that I've accumulated, right? And so like whenever I'm looking at something, I'm looking at like 10 million hands, not just my 100,000 hands. And it turns out if you get 10 million hands and you see that, you know, you have people doing various things and one play just makes more money than the other pretty clearly, then, then that's going to be quite good. I mean, another spot that, that you'll just print is if under the gun raises and they get a bunch of callers, you should be three betting hands like big Broadway offsuit hands like King Jack, King Queen, et cetera, from the small blind and big blind. Um, calling is profitable, but squeezing is very often more profitable in those spots because you block the initial raiser's range. The callers often block the initial raiser's premium range as well. Um, so, so their range is going to be a little bit weaker than normal under the gun. When you squeeze, you're going to squeeze to like a little bit less than the size of the pot, so pretty big. Those three big blinds or two big blinds, call, 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 you're making like 12 or something, right? Yeah. And no one's going to call you, or they're going to rip it all in. And if they rip it all in, who cares? You have the king jack offsuit and you fold. So that's another spot where I have like a lot of data that says that you're going to win a little bit by calling, but you're going to win a ton by re-raising. And that's a spot where you never, like I, Jonathan Little, never would have found that play. Because if you look at all the GTO solvers, they very often just say call in these spots. But the strong exploit in small and medium six games that, that people are not, people open a little bit too wide and they overfold a little bit too much to the big blind three bet especially because they expect the big blind to call everything. Yep. And data just kind of gives you clairvoyance on things that like you don't see through experience or you don't even learn through experience where it's like, oh, in order for me to know this, I would have to like call down 10,000 times in a row and just to build up the database of calling down and to spend like, so data is just to me is like the end all be all uh, of all these things and mixed and paired with great theory is just very, very, very powerful. So let's, we'll, we'll wrap up this round three with JL Uh, Of course, I'll have you back on in the very near future and we'll close by uh, asking you or yeah, asking you where can the Chasing Poker Uranus audience find you on the World Wide Web if they don't know, which I don't know how they wouldn't know at this point, but we'll do it anyway. All of the people who are new here who do not know me, uh, they can check me out on YouTube at youtube.com slash poker coaching. We have lots and lots of videos there. I think I make something like five videos on YouTube per week. I also have a Twitter at Jonathan Little and I have a training site, pokercoaching.com. People can go to pokercoaching.com slash free to get a free tip. They can also go to pokercoaching.com slash fundamentals to get a uh, fundamentals course for free. So lots of stuff there available. Lots lots and lots of resources. Check it out, pokercoaching.com. Yep. And also watch Brad videos. Yeah, we we have some Coach Brad um, webinars and more to come every single month. So pokercoaching.com. Thanks for your time and energy, man. I always appreciate it. Always a good time. Thanks for having me. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do, one man Coach Brad Wilson has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Available now. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash Nuffle. Rated R.